name is Bond. James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours. License to kill. Blind mice in a row, tree blind mice, there they go, marching down the street, single file, to a calypso beat all the while, they're looking for the cat, the cat that swallowed the rat, they want to show that cat the attitude of tree blind mice. James Bond, 007, licensed to kill whom he pleases, where he pleases, when he pleases. From the elegant club rooms of Mayfair to exotic island night spots. Good evening. Who pays you? You. Tell us. A strange adventure of intrigue, treachery, and love. Hello? Oh, Mr. Bond. I was thinking. Why don't you collect me at my apartment? It's lovely up here in the mountains. Her directions were easy to follow. And she sent a few of her friends to make sure I didn't get lost. She thought I was dead, but I proceeded to prove her wrong. I thought it was always polite to knock first. Before shooting. Honey, from our very first meeting, was everything her name implied. She clung to me like a wet bathing suit. But business as usual came first. The pace was killing. I thought you less stupid. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? You damaged my organization. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman whose luck is run out. Maybe it was my luck. Up to my neck in hot water. Or something blowing up in my face. You'll live dangerously with the superbly resourceful James Bond. The exclusive screen dramatization of the book that has entertained millions of viewers. The exotic and tantalizing Dr. No. Some people will go to any extremes for a little privacy. I have been told that I must inform you the following program contains adult subject matter, adult language, and spoilers. Now thank you and enter if you dare. So I'm the Alpha Frank, and we'll do the following Sunday reviewing Jane Bond movies. Do you remember when you first saw Dr. No, the original feature film? I'm pretty sure that it was on TV. I'm thinking it was in the 70s. It was on TV probably on a Saturday or something. As you know, I used to build and race motorcycles, and as a result of that, there were times I was immobile and not able to do anything <laughs> except watch TV. And it, it was probably during one of those times, and I saw it on TV. TV, probably during a Saturday or something. 
and getting frustrated at the commercial because mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to you know bond and that kind of stuff those kind of shows are kind of hard to get into when it's broken up by commercial mm-hmm. so you pretty much have to be strapped to the couch and unable to do anything else to even try to watch it that way well it always seemed to me especially as a kid the bond movies were always kind of long i think they tended to run a little over two hours for most of them so for me i kind of liked having that break in between the how dense those movies could be at times as a kid i didn't mind the commercials well you know i've been collecting before dvds i had vhs's i had a good many of the bond films on vhs not like I have now, you know, I've got them all. But mm-hmm. I don't think I actually fully absorbed Dr. No until I got the DVDs. And I think I got those, I started collecting those DVDs about 2006, a long time down the road. Do you want to give a synopsis of the movie real quick? You could call it a political thriller. And of course, it's also a science fiction show. It assumes a lot of things that people still sometimes assume. Basically, you're talking about a secret agent trying to stop some kind of which i don't know if you realize this but they never really explain the nuclear attack on the missile well my understanding is dr no is projecting waves that are messing with the controls for the rocket launches not the i mean they had, i think there were missile launches they was messing with as well but specifically at cape canaveral they were trying to get rockets into space and they kept crashing because these radio waves were screwing with their directions right and i don't think they ever explained why specifically Dr. No felt the need to do that. It seemed well, like but, they, was... but they also don't explain how nuclear anything, because it's all about nuclear. Yeah, I, they draw that radioactivity, yeah. Right. How that has anything to do with knocking a rocket out of the air. Mm-hmm. Again, you also got the character motivation. Dr. No was supposed to have been half, what was he, half German, half Asian? What was he? I think he was half German and half Chinese. And so he actually managed to become a bookkeeper for the Tongs. Right. And then he rips them off for $10 million and absconds with that to the U.S. Right. And then he starts screwing around with radioactivity, which is how he fries his hands and ends up with, like, flipper hands. Hands, like the penguin from Batman Returns. Uh, well, they're, no, they're they're actually artificial. They're yeah, they're like robot hands, right? Yeah. But because he's got those vinyl covers over them, they look like flippers to me. Right. Especially because he keeps the way he holds his hand when he does it. And then he wants revenge on the U.S. Well, he actually, in the movie, he offers himself to the different governments right, and they all as turn some kind of nuclear expert, mm-hmm. which assumes evidence, uh, uh, assumes, makes assumptions with no evidence. In other words, his prowess with nuclear energy is not talking about going to the university. It's like he's self-taught nuclear engineer right. and knows more than the nuclear engineers. Well, apparently he wants to revenge himself on I mean, all the even Lex Luthor went to college, you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, apparently he wants to revenge himself on all the governments that turned him down. Right. And so that's why he's doing this, which is kind of nutty. And so this one British spy is investigating for the U.S. because it's their rockets that are going down, strange way. And he gets killed by three men pretending to be blind. Thrown in a hearse, his secretary gets killed, and that's why they bring James Bond into it. And so he investigates, he ends up on that island. Well, now, the part about James Bond being involved in this Mm -hmm. makes sense, because Jamaica was the property of the British government in those days. They had actually, they were, they, uh, probably when the book was written, that was true, but I was listening to the commentary track, and they were talking about how Jamaica had only just, within the last few years, before the movie was made, gotten their independence from true the, the Brits. Uh, true yeah uh, you know it, it was just like when i was in hong kong 
Hong Kong gets officially non-British, and then immediately talks are in effect to turn them over to the Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, we had war games when I was in the service on our way back from Vietnam with what we then called the nationalist Chinese. Mm -hmm. That's how I ended up in Hong Kong in the first place. Mm -hmm. So James Bond, the CIA, and Jamaican locals track, basically follow up where strange ways, strange ways left off and uh, trace all the problems back to this nuclear irradiated island that's owned by Dr. No. Crash his party, blow up his stuff, and hurrah. Which, story. by the way, in 1962, if that was actually going on, the U.S. Navy would have showed up and destroyed the island. There'd been nothing left. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't need no nuclear or anything to do it. <laughs> but James Bond had to have something to do. Right. And of course, you know, any primary character that was Oriental in those days had to be played by a white person. Yeah, there's a, yellow, a lot of yellow face in this movie. I don't think there's a single Asian person, but there's like three Asian characters. And I, the, Well, well no, there, there are are Asians in it. Okay, who's the Asian? Well, if you if you look, a lot of the, the people in the, the hazmat suits were Asians. Real Asians? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, judging by their faces, I think most of them were like Filipinos and stuff. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, because uh, in the commentary track, one of the actors was talking about how they used, like, rubber bands or something to pull her eyes out to make her look... Yeah, a lot of times like they that. just used tape. Yeah, and certainly the lead actor, Dr. No, they did that with. Mm-hmm. Sure they did. It was real common. I mean, Charles Charlie Chan was not Chinese. Mm-hmm. His son was, but he wasn't. Yeah, and uh, we looked at the comic adaptation. They they did a, in 62, Classics Illustrated in the UK did an adaptation of Dr. No. And then when they ported it over to the US, it was published by DC Comics in an issue of Showcase. And even though the, the most, uh, the, uh, most of the story is set in Jamaica, there wasn't a single black face in the, the DC version. They recolored everybody to what be white people, mm-hmm. which was kind of gross. Uh, but it just it's a sign of the times. They wouldn't even show these side characters being black in a DC comic in 63. And apparently it was like a bust for them too because it came out like four months before the movie came out. So it was already long off the stands before the movie came out. It didn't make that much money. It wasn't that much of a success. And even though DC had the license to James Bond throughout that decade, for the most part they didn't even know it. They didn't produce any more comics. And it wasn't until they were about to lose the license in 72 that they tried to do something with they approached Jack Kirby and Alex Toth to try to do it. And they couldn't get it together and it ended up not happening. So in, in another instance of DC just constantly screwing up James yeah, Bond one of the things years. one of the things you might not be taking into an account mm-hmm. is that there were paperbacks of characters that people did read. When I was growing up, there was a Sergeant Fury mm-hmm. uh, was one that one of my cousins read, and another one was the Executioner, which is not the Executioner that comes to your mind. Well, the Don Pendleton books, Mac Bolin. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, he killed mafia people. Right, right. He had, the Punisher's a big ripoff of that character. Right. But the, you have that other one called Executioner, which is... Wait, is, you thinking of the Destroyer, Remo Williams? No, no. No, 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 no. These were paperbacks yeah. called the Executioner. Right. And this guy, and he knew Bond. The Executioner drove what was termed a Studelac back in the days. Uh, later on, they were known as an Avalon. And that's because that company, like a Dorian, Studebaker made the car, the body for it, but it had a Cadillac engine in it, mm-hmm. big Cadillac engine in it, and people called them Studelac. They were pretty rare. It eventually migrated to Canada, and they were made in Canada for a long time. I remember reading one of the books where he's talking 
talking to Bond, and that was back when Bond was driving his his uh, uh, Austin Martin, Martin mm-hmm. and the executioner points out that how much more power his car had. Bond acknowledged the fact, yeah, it'd be faster. It's got a lot more power till the wheels fall off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but and see, I didn't buy those myself. In mm-hmm. fact, I think back in those days, I wouldn't even have known where to buy them. Mm-hmm. But in the summertime, when we were spending, I w- we were visiting my Louisiana relatives. My cousin had those books. It was, and he was, you know, mentally he was he was kind of slow, but he could read those books and really loved them. He was really into Sergeant Fury, mm-hmm. and I would knock out his years reading in two three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he kept them. He prized those books. Always kind of amazed they didn't make a film series on that character, the executioner. I want to say they might have tried something, maybe a foreign movie or something. I can't believe that they didn't do anything with him. But I, part of it too may be just that Marvel ripped them off so thoroughly, and then they've never been able to make a successful Punisher movie that maybe they never tried with Mac Bolan. How do we get onto this though? Oh yeah, with DC. Yeah, DC Comics were a big company, and they just always were able to take defeat from the jaws of victory. They decided not to renew the license when they could have because they figured, well, Sean Connery's leaving the role. It's probably going to be into bonds. We just won't do any James Bond comic books. It's probably going to pass now that James. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ever read one Mm -hmm. a James Bond comic book. Well, they didn't make hardly any of them. Because they made that one in 1963, and then DC had the license throughout the 60s, and even though they made rip-offs of James Bond, they never made anything out of the actual license. They had a British comic strip that we wouldn't have gotten had access to. I don't think they actually did Bond comics until some of the movie adaptations in the early 80s, and then finally some of the smaller well, publishers got the license. But there was a lot of Bond toys. Yeah. You, well, you talked about, you, did, did, you, uh, did you send off any of the stuff from the comics? Well, but I mean, I, 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 would see I bought it. I had, uh, in one of the Bond films, there's a camera gun. used to be, back in the old days, every town had a five and dime store. I bought one of those camera guns, played with it all summer. To us, that was our Transformers. So they would come out with these toys, and I would get them. I had Matchbox car of the Aston Martin, and they had a James Bond version where the barrier in the back came up and that kind of stuff. Other people, cousins I had, would had other toys that were based on the John. We knew who James Bond was. We knew what he looked like and that kind of stuff. It was just that it was later in the 60s before I saw the films. Yeah. I had, uh, I got it at a, a flea market and it was like a black rectangle and I think it had two different things. I think it had the periscope so that you could see around corners mm-hmm. and I think it also had like a baby microscope, basically just like a magnifying glass really, mm-hmm. but it would magnify things really large. You could see through that. So I, I had a, a one or two of those James Bond toys too. Mm-hmm. How did we get on this though? I don't remember. Well, James Bond. Oh, because I, I talked about the, the comic adaptation. Oh, because we were talking about race, because you were talking about all the yellow face in the movie. To some extent, that stuff didn't even start changing until the 90s. It really didn't, because I remember, I think, what was it, the late 70s, early 80s, when Peter Stullers did uh, one of the last Fu Manchu movies? Mm-hmm. I think there was a Fu Manchu movie in theaters when I was a kid, like early 80s or so. Yeah, I, that was I might have even good. seen it. I, I think I saw Fu Charlie Man, Chan, Man too, Chu, for that time period. I was, I was into that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, oh, those are so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that Sax Romer stuff, major yellow peril. But he's still a cool visual, though. He looks cool. He's a cool villain. It's just all the grace of stuff that's bundled up with that. It's hard 
to deal with well, in modern perspective. To a certain extent, I, I was brought up in a, a naive era. There was things, like you could say I was streetwise. I got streetwise during Vietnam. Being streetwise doesn't necessarily mean you're not naive. I think a lot of that race stuff, probably I had blinders to it. You know, I, I just didn't notice it. You know, if I watched it today, looked at it today, i go, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, we were talking the other night about how I think that's how Trump happened, is that people have had those blinders on for so long, and now that you've got all this social media and and so much sensitivity to racial issues and diversity issues, and white people... Well, I think Trump has proven sexism is not anywhere near done. No, no, not even. And and among women, too. I mean, I think all those white women voters showed that they don't want to listen to a woman boss them around either, it seems like. But I think a lot of it is that there's been all this hypersensitivity sensitivity not hypersensitivity but just an increased sensitivity but to people who aren't used to it it, it makes them hypersensitive about it and I think there's an aggressive response to society demanding of them to be more culturally aware and they don't like it they preferred it when they could just go through life with those blinders on and to a large extent I think they still have the blinders on well I, I never personally, that's how you end up with you know all lives matter nonsense I never personally had racial issues many people of my era certainly did you know especially in Vietnam man who do you think was watching my back it was the black guy mm-hmm. they were the ones they may not understand jungle warfare but they understood urban warfare mm-hmm. and somehow all that stuff for at least for me disappeared they were my brothers you know and as you know you know we've got family like that mm-hmm. so it was just never an issue and same thing with sexism i mean you were raised in a matriarchal oh, yeah. house oh yeah my big family my mother's side of the family Family was matriarchal. Yeah. And it was the same thing with my father's family to a great extent. Them guys were like merchant seamen and stuff. Who do you think were running things while they were out at sea earning the money? Yeah. I mean, you know, when, when I was coming around into your household more, I could see that it was great grandmother and then grandmother. When things got bad in that respect, once the center no longer held, that's when it stopped being her at the center of the family, basically. Right. And your great grandmother and her friends. You probably heard of Aunt who really wasn't family, family by blood, but she was family in every other respect to us and your great-grandmother's sisters. You're talking about women that broke ground. They were running things, investing in things, when women weren't supposed to be doing that. One of her sisters ran, uh, I'm not going to mention any of the companies, but actually ran big lumber and brick concerns. Probably never got paid the money for it, but what they did pay her, she invested like a high roller investor which really produced a lot of the stuff that you grew up and saw and wondered about that's where the production came from and of course your grandmother was an investigator for it was a company back in the day that traveled all around the country in puerto rico and places auditing what was going on in store her job was as a professional shopper but you know it was a type of investigator mm-hmm. you know it was a it was a detective they're looking at everything having to do 
shoplifting, skimming, shoplifting, tilted. Yeah, uh, their Other general demeanor, the friendliness, you know, the service. They're checking all that stuff, and it was for the biggest stores back in that those days. Woolworth was a huge concern. Sears, Foley's in Texas, you know, big outfits. But she went all over the country, every state. That's, I guess, one of the reasons why she liked buses. She actually enjoyed cruising the thing. Mm -hmm. The only place she never went was Puerto Rico. She always wanted to get one of the jobs in Puerto Rico, and she never went. But she went everywhere else. Uh, Yeah, my first recollection of airplanes was a lot of times she would fly in from wherever she was on her vacation, which she'd spend with us. And back in those days, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but everything was done on the tarmac. You know, you Mm -hmm. went to the airport and walked out there to where the airplane was sitting. Uh, I think I was a teenager before they had the kind of system similar to what we have now. This truck would come up and had a ladder mounted on the roof and that's how you got off and on the airplane. <laughs> so let's let's kind of take it front to back. The title sequence. It was weird to me watching it. I, I know the first time I tried to watch it years ago, it bugged me too, is how much more awkward the shot of the actor walking into the gun sight frame and then turning and shooting that iconic image. Mm-hmm. It was so much more awkward in this first version. And then you've got all those color dots. And I realize they're probably trying to show, like, you know, the, the, the science of the nuclear, you know, uh, uh, base and all that kind of stuff. But I was just like, what's with all the freaking color dots? You and, mean in, 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 the, in the title sequence? With the gun. Yeah, no, and then they have the dots. Holes. Yeah, but then they have all those dots. Well, they're not all bullet holes, though. They've got, like, dozens of different dots and different geometric patterns and stuff. Yeah, well. So, and then then all of a sudden, the James Bond theme that's so iconic becomes that stupid calypso, and you have the people dancing in colored silhouettes. It looked like something from a, a karaoke video to me. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? It's just so obvious they don't know what they're doing yet in that respect. With the- you do realize several of those Bond movies that were shot in islands and... Louisiana, that was all to save them money. Yeah, well, and that, we'll get to that too, but yeah, it's just, it's funny because you've got, like, right from the start, you've got the, the gun sight thing that's so iconic about Bond, and then you have the music, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of getting into it, like you do with Bond stuff, and then they just crap the bed with all this other goofy stuff, the Calypso, the three blind mice. Well, but uh, yeah, you gotta understand, see, you're not from that time, yeah. and I am. Yeah. In that time, that music was very popular. Harry Belafonte and his Calypso stuff was very, very popular. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It wasn't just in the fifties. It stretched until the, about the mid sixties. It was really popular with with the Brits. But it was, you know, they made. I thought they did a pretty good job of making those movies because they were after the American market, and I think they succeeded in that. Oh yeah. No, I was reading about it. How the success of the the success of the Bond movies formed the spine of the British film industry from then on. Mm-hmm. You know, if nothing else they always had the bonds that they were keep making at Pinewood it's such a quintessentially British property too I love the doubt that title sequence at all I was surprised though how violent the killings of Strangway and his associate were though I didn't think you could show that bright red blood that early on was that at all common at that time period no that's part of part of when I say they were racy it was racy you also have to look at it in terms of if anybody would have been appalled at that at that time it it would have been more the 
Brits than the American. But yeah, the fact it may be the fact it was in color. But there's many black and white American films where it's there's very very bloody. But it's, it's you couldn't tell because it's black and white. Yeah. <laughs> But the Brits always have had more of an aversion to that than we have, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not as They were a little bit, you know, when it comes to sexuality, they're a lot more liberal. But mm-hmm. violence and blood, they have an issue with that. Yeah, well, I think that's probably healthier, too. I, well, I think it's one of the reasons why they're so into the science fiction. You brought up the ray gun. That's why, because ray guns don't create blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you drop and you get a little bit of smoke and you don't see nada. And, and so then we get the introduction of Bond, which I think was great. I think they held it just the right length of time where you don't quite see him. You keep getting the impression of him being there. I think given that they're trying to sell this character to American audiences and having him so cool when they finally give you the full frame, Bond. And he's lighting a cigarette with James Bond. That and he, he was at his peak. I mean, Sean Connery, when that movie was made, was 32 years old. And I mean, all you got to do is look at his body when he, his shirt's off. Yeah. Every guy wanted to be him, and mm-hmm. every girl wanted to be with him. Well, and that's the thing that I found, too, is I wasn't a big fan of Dr. No, watching it. I, I just didn't think it great. It felt very small. It felt very cheap. I know that it was small and cheap. But what carries the movie to me, I think what completely puts Bond over, is Connery. Because he is more handsome than any of the women in the movie are beautiful. He is such a, a, a paragon of masculinity. It's like, I'm, I'm in well, in a so way, you can compare him to John Wayne. John Wayne best characters is that he could turn on that cold and Sean Connery's character if nothing else is cold yeah but even beyond that though because I mean I like those character elements but I'm talking about you look at him he looks like a drawing he doesn't even look like a human being because he's so well he looks defined. surreal no yeah. he does he he's got those surreal. big thick arched eyebrows right. and that line what would you call this a laugh line okay so he's got the laugh lines he's got just such striking features and then he's really a good shape for the 60s he's well got and just, the tan is not orange it's the real yeah, it's deal. a nice dark tan and he's got that enviable chest hair too it's like it's just like again but he looks like a see, drawing and that's the thing see nowadays you know me you see me with my shirt off i'm dead gum monkey mm-hmm. but nowadays it's like people want you clean shaven like you just came out of your mama i don't mind women removing their hair and stuff in mm-hmm. places i guess you know but to me you know i don't i don't want to be snuggling up to a porpoise yeah yeah no <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i get it when it comes to stuff like hair on the shoulders and stuff that and he had it too. Yeah, but but he had a really nice design to his hair. It's like it looked like a tornado coming out of his navel. It's like it had a real good aesthetic quality to I'm it. I'm sure there was a certain amount of grooming. Some manscaping well, was going you, on there. You, you went, took the time to read about him. He tried to be a bodybuilder. Yeah. I think he was like a, a tempted Mr. Universe or a contestant or something. Right, right. But, and even back then, they would put oil on him and stuff. Hair would be fine. Of course, back in those days, hair was desirable. You're right. You know, man, you know, yeah. bears were in. Right. And if you watch the James, he had quite a bit of uh, shoulder and back hair, too. But I'm sure there was. there's always been grooming. Like, look at his nails. 
he was getting manicures and pedicures. You can tell when he's wearing sandals. That crap's not natural. Somebody's been working on that. And men didn't generally, you know, men would do it themselves or stuff. Mm-hmm. But man getting a manicure or pedicure, you'd have to be pretty rich yeah. to, to even consider it. Because you're not, I mean, even for women, it was kind of rare. When I was reading up on it, apparently he grew up dirt poor. And he'd gotten some movie roles. In, in particular, he'd had a small role with the, the fellow who directed Dr. No. I think it's Terrence Young was the guy's name. They got they got on well, and he was like, come on, give me something. And the guy kept on, no, I don't have anything for you. And after they'd done a fair search for Bond, he showed up one day, and he's kind of scruffy looking. But he just, he played at the Devil May Care cool real well. And like, yeah, that's the guy. And so one of the producers took him out and taught him how to be a man about town, of someone who, who lives a life of luxury, and got the pedicures and the manicures and all that kind of stuff, and basically refined that raw cool into the more debonair Bond mold. He kind of gets the best of both worlds because he's got that rawness where you can believe that this guy could be like a, a rough man, a, a killer of people, not just men, which, you know, killer of women, which is not very common in that time period, especially for a character that's supposed to be at least an anti-hero, if not an outright hero, but he's also very suave, and, and, and that's the part he had to learn, I imagine. Akita, she's got a thing for Daniel Craig. She likes the Bond movies, but she really only watches the Daniel Craig ones, and she loves everything about him. She loves the way he moves and all this kind of stuff. I think he looks like a slab of beef, and I think he's ugly as sin. I don't like looking at Daniel Craig if I can help it. I think he's a pretty good actor, but he's just like a big old block of meat. You know, especially once he's ripped for the Bond stuff. What she sees in Craig, I see in this early Sean Connery, where just the way he moves, he has that grace to him. He has this, but it, but it's like a like an animal in the jungle kind of grace. You know, he looks like a, a lethal kind of guy. But what was cool in this first movie is how vulnerable he is too, because you can tell this guy's legitimately terrified that he's going to get killed, like Strangway was. Uh, all that stuff, that whole sequence where he's licking his uh, hair and putting it against the door to show if anybody opened up his closet door, where he puts the power on the briefcase see if anybody touched it and they did all that stuff while he was gone and he goes to get that bottle of booze and starts to pour a glass and he's like wait they might have poisoned this and he goes and he finds ones that he had stashed instead there's several instances over the course of this movie where he shows a vulnerability that you don't usually see with Bond before he became a superhero and you can tell he's outright terrified he's scared that he's going to get killed and he's a professional he's still handling it but I think he's drinking kind of heavily for being on the job and I think he shows fear in this movie that you don't see in the later movies well he mentions it to Ursula Andrews. Yeah, well, she's like, I'm, I'm glad to see that your hands are sweaty, too. It's like, yeah, I'm, I think we might die. So, yeah. you know, it's understandable that we'd be feeling this way. Well, so, but, but in the later movies, he's so above it all, so aloof, you don't get to see that human side of him. Uh, essentially, in Doctor No, he's not quite the sociopath that he becomes. Yeah, although he does kill that one evil professor. You know, he, he knows the guy's out of bullets. He even sets him up to reach for his gun, knowing that it was out of bullets. And it sort of, like, gives him a rationale to kill his well, that what? was something else he mentioned to Ursula Andrews when he kills that one guard. And he yeah. says, but I had to. Yeah. You know, I'm only doing this because I absolutely have to. Yeah. And later on, he loses all that. After he found out that the Asian secretary was the mole, and he's playing around with her towel as he's starting to seduce her, and I'm really wondering, okay, is he about to choke this woman to death? And I think he's debating it, too. I think that was part of the sign. Is he's like, first he thinks he's going to kill her, and then he decides, no, I'm going to sleep with her, and then I'm going to have my guys come and arrest her and then I'm going to wait for the guys that she's called to come kill me. That's kind of showing his his slickness and his intelligence. And I thought it was done really well since you brought it up. I mean, because they lead you to believe you forget about it. As, as a spectator to this, you forget about it. But he's caught her. He knows who and what she is in the office. Mm-hmm. He's our 
already made arrangements for them to be there to pick her up because mm-hmm. he knows what's coming. He's prepared for it. Well, he calls for the taxi so after they've already slept but together. But it was prearranged. They, he doesn't... So they know what he means when he calls them out to be yeah. yeah, and you know that the thing's not coming out of town because mm-hmm. you have to drive out of town. It's there in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a telephone call to somebody who's radioing people standing by right outside the gate. Yeah. I thought that was executed rather well. It showed that he'd already spotted this girl. He knew that she was dangerous. And you're right. I think about the towel. I think that was his weapon that he was going to use, whether he was going to kill her with it or just stop her from grabbing a gun with it or whatever. He's Mm -hmm. looking for that to come. Because, I mean, you know, in a way, it comes across as if he's toying with her the whole time. He wants her to make a move to give him a cue on what's going to happen, but he already knows what the end result is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know the steps taken, and he pretty much baits her into doing that stuff. You know, in other words, when she calls for the, when he shows up unexpectedly, and she has to call for backup to come kill him, because she had no way. She'd assumed that he'd been killed when the car was coming after him in the first place. Well, she knew knew that it was a hit squad, and that hurts. Mm -hmm. And how he got past him, she's trying to figure out. You Mm -hmm. know, there's three or four guys in there. They did the same thing, and which one was it that takes place? Well, well, I can't think of the movie, but uh, off the top of my head, but they did the same gig where it's a hit squad after him and and they die in a very similar way. Uh, He may not necessarily have been looking for a a hearse out on a mountain road, but, and and they were, they're probably, their intent, I don't think, were to run him over. I think they were trying to get on the side of him just to shoot him, you know, but they leave that for your imagination. Yeah. Uh, One complaint I have to add, though, the action in the movie wasn't very good. Like, the, the rear projection was really obvious during that sequence. His fights scene with the chauffeur that picks up the airport that turns out to be an enemy agent and tries to kill him. Pretty weak fight there. And the climactic battle at the uh, Dr. Nose Island nuclear plant at the end. It feels very drawn out with him just sort of walking around this set. And then, you know, he, t- he turns a lever, he throws a couple of guys in the water, and then it's all done with. Uh, so you could tell how small the scope was and how small the budget was, I think, by how poor the action well, was. Well, and you're also, you brought up, you said it, it made Pinewood. Mm-hmm. They were on a learning curve. Mm-hmm. And also, you can say about all the fantastic things CGI has done, but that live action stuff, once they got, you know, as it went along, it got better and better. Like, you'd be hard-pressed in a Bond movie to see a fake punch or somebody not actually being knocked to the ground. Sean Connery liked to do a lot of those stunts. So, it, you know. yeah, they talked about how the insurers were having an issue with how many stunts he wanted to do, especially as the movies progressed. By then, you know, there's so many things like his military record we brought uh, we talked about earlier. Like a lot of these, he wasn't people, in the war. He wasn't a secret agent. Nothing like that. He was just right in the service for a time. Right. People bought into that stuff, and and Hollywood was known for selling that kind of crap. They may put out the rumor themselves. And as long as they didn't publicly broadcast it as fact, then, you know, what the public thought was great. Like I said, there was stuff about Richard Burton. I still don't know whether it's true or not. Maybe that's why, maybe some of it was true. Maybe that's why he was such a bad drunk. I don't know. 
when you look at these people like Cary Grant, I can think of a lot of others. I mean, look at how long people missed uh, Rock Hudson. Believe it or not, when I heard that in the 80s, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I went back and watched those movies, mm-hmm. and I go, yeah. <laughs> 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 Put a gun to my head. (laughs) There was a lot of details that back in those days would have gone over a lot of people's head, but they took the trouble for people who knew things to, you know, nowadays America is really wrapped up in things like handguns and assault rifles, right? In those days, a pistol was a pistol. We talked about this before, too. They start off the whole introduction to Bond with taking away his 32 caliber Beretta. Yeah. What was the story about that, though? Why Why did they make such a big deal about taking the Beretta in this first movie? Alright. Because well, you know, they say, too, he'd been using it for 10 years, it was his, his weapon of choice, Right. and it jammed on him and he ended up spending six months in the hospital because of that jam so M is like give me your Beretta you're not in the okay. room with this here's your new one right. okay this is real simple to, to explain to some extent okay okay the a 32 is not an automatic casing a 32 was for a re- revolver originally what later became the Colt 45 started out as a 32 and a 32 is not really that much bigger than a uh, 22 so to me it makes sense because in basic terms James Bond is an assassin license to kill that's his whole thing you can compare him to a combat soldier in a civilian role but he's an assassin 32 makes sense a lot of professional killers it's a fact that they prefer something like a 22 I'm sure that there are other calibers now that they might find exciting I don't know this but the reason for that is if you use a 22 right I mean it's a deadly weapon a headshot with a 22 is probably going to kill you especially if it's a double tap but you got to know where to shoot somebody like the eye socket under the base of the skull mm-hmm. and the angle would make a difference well i imagine two of the biggest smaller cattle birds gonna be rattling around inside the skull but it won't necessarily make the mess because it's not gonna blow out the back of the skull necessarily is that right no that? yeah I've, I've, I've actually known people who shot themselves in the head mm-hmm. and lived but yeah basically a lot of people don't understand bullets are not all bullets are not the same i mean you know even if they're the same caliber and we don't want to get off into a discussion on ballistics but basically if a 22 or a 32 does not hit bone it can do some serious damage mom in the other room her gun that i got her as a carry gun that she never carries but it's a 32 h&r mac it's a 32 it's got the same bullet that we're talking about but it's got a lot of power behind it so it's terminal ballistics is more like a 38 special you can't argue a lot of people like to argue about how deadly a 38 is as opposed to something like a nine millimeter and i can tell you that first off 38 nine millimeter is basically the same bullet we make our own bullets we have bullet molds and i can tell you the bullet mold for the 38 and the bullet mold for the nine millimeter is the same mold so it's the same bullet what's behind it is different some nine millimeters would not be anywhere near as effective as a 38 and the reason for that is is because a 38 special you could 
pretty much call that a 9mm mag. And when you're talking about an auto bullet, they're shorter and fatter. So they keep them short. The difference is one is called a rimless. You know, the rim does not extend past the shell itself. And that's the case with that 32. The 32 and 20 and 22, there's no automatic casing. It's the same casing that you would put in a normal pistol, a revolver style pistol or a single shot rifle. They just devised a way that it could be an auto gun and work with a, a rim on the casing itself. And of course, because of that, sometimes they jam. I have an assault rifle that's 22, so it shoots a, a 22 shell, and it can shoot in full automatic. But there are going to be those times because of the way that bullet's flipping out of there, because it's got to come out hard and flipping because it's got that rim on it. That I'm going to have issue with it, you know. Mm. And that's the deal about that gun. Back in those days, a small, good, small holdout gun or Saturday Night Special, whatever you want to call them, would be a 25 or a 32, both of which were not auto casing in those days. I, later, they came out with an auto casing for a 25. But in his case, the Walter PPK in America would have been a 380. In his case, it would be a 752, I think. I'm not. Uh, not real sure about that. A 7.65, which of course, when you think about it, 7.65, see, a, a 380 is also called a Browning 9mm. See, so the 7.65 would be somewhere between the 9mm diameter and a 32 diameter. But if I'm the as far as the way the gun shoots and performs, it would be very similar to the 380 in America. The reason why he's going to go from the Beretta to the Walther PBK is because M feels that he needs more stopping power for the type of missions that he's going to well, be taking yeah, okay, on now. Okay. Like maybe Bond had been okay, doing the assassin right. stuff more. Okay. Now. As far as stopping power, that's debatable. Mm. You are talking about a heavier slug. More, I think he's talking about the reliability between a rim shell and a rimless automatic shell. In other words, you're, you're t both guns are semi-automatic, but one is using a shell de designed for an automatic. And, of course, it, with... Walter guns, they're very good guns. Very good guns, but they're very ammo picky. Mm. So you have to pretty much make sure you buy a certain ammo so that the gun will fire it without an issue. But why was that in the movie, though? Why was it important to show him surrender the Beretta and him being so reluctant to surrender the Beretta in favor of the Walther PBK? I can't speak to a British audience on that. For an American audience, it was well known. We had a lot of gangland land movies. They were very popular, untouchable-like stuff. They always made reference to the hitman using a 22. Most of those movies made some kind of reference to the double-tap 22. And that may have been part of it. I mean, you know, I can't really read into their mind. But also, you're looking at the technical side of shooting. You know, somebody that would be skeptical about that movie, it's one of the things about the movie that caught me. I caught on real quick. In fact, the reason why I knew the data on the, the shell is because 
because at one point I looked it up thinking it would have been a 380 and later on it was a 380 later on he still carried a PPK but it was a 380 and not a 7.65 which I know why that is too because you try to buy 7.65 here in America today it's hard to find mm-hmm. and if you find it it's going to be expensive 380 you can find anywhere I will argue the point that it's expensive as opposed to 9 millimeter or bigger shell but that's another topic too we had Q in this one but not really it's just yeah, not no, Q, Q is not mentioned Desmond the it's it's well it's his real name right I'm not certain Booth, but it's, Ron, I think it's it? the third movie it's like Thunderball when Q is first mentioned by the name, the name Q. Q yeah but wasn't he like Boothroyd or something or Boothrod something because I, I believe he's it, it's a different actor playing the same character in this one yes he it is, the it is. Yeah. Uh, when he died it became a topic of movie conversation I guess you'd mm-hmm. call it they never mention it because yeah you're right it's a different guy when they say he was always Q yeah that's true he was was always Q, but in the first movie there was no... He wasn't by that name. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of the girlfriend they introduced in this one? The girl that he's playing cards with at the beginning of the movie, he sleeps with, she turns up one more time in From Russia with Love, but the intention was for her to be in six movies as the girlfriend he has back at home while he's doing all this other womanizing. And they ended up dropping it, I think, because the actors had other engagements. I, I Personally, I'm glad that he didn't have the girlfriend back at home, but what do you think about that idea? It wasn't until, what, Her Majesty's Secret Service that they finally bring up his wife. I know that there's probably somebody somewhere that knows that stuff, but the books differed from the movies, which is always the case. You brought that up in this movie. He has an apartment. (laughs) Try to remember another apartment in James Bond. He's always in a hotel. It's usually high end, Mm -hmm. living like he's a billionaire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In this one, he actually has a home. He went home, walked into his apartment, and you could tell it was a nice bachelor pad. He probably didn't entertain the women there. If you look, it mm. wasn't it wasn't made to entertain women. He nailed them at their place or at the hotel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try not to overthink these things. Yeah. Um, Podcasts but, are all about overthinking things, though. Huh? Podcasts are all about overthinking things, though. Well, all right, let's think about that. It makes him. They always bring these things up, but this has been, you know, about the most sexiest kind of man for a woman what what a woman is generally looking for in a man mm-hmm. and now they're saying that he needs to be a little bit pudgy he's got he's got to have some some love handles that's what makes him durable that's what makes him reliable that's what makes him sexy mm-hmm. well back in those days it was always the women that were sex objects mm-hmm. you know they would notice good-looking men and see I was aware because I would hear you know women talking about men men and they didn't pay any attention to me i mean I, you know it's almost like a little boy was sexless uh-huh. <laughs> they would notice somebody with those chiseled features you know mm-hmm. tall dark and handsome and i think that's why you brought this up before that's why they picked him tall dark and handsome chiseled features back then you know i'm sure the bad boy thing if you look at films you see it all the time you know women are going for the bad the blob is a good example uh, he was a bad boy that's why most people, you know, to most people, he might have been a hero. He might have been the reliable guy. But he was perceived, McLean was perceived as the bad guy. 
I think in this bond thing, that whole thing with the girlfriend was for the women's benefit. They want the woman to be lured into the fact that, hey, you might be one. If he's calm enough to have a girlfriend, possibly a fiancé, because you know they don't want to get into all that crap, then you might want to watch this guy because you have a shot at him too. <laughs> you know, it's really funny during... I, and I didn't learn this. I was a big Beatles fan. And I didn't learn this until much, much later. It was something that, that, that the most popular Beatle was Ringo. There's been all kinds of big studies on why that was. And as it turns out, women saw him as obtainable. And mm -hmm. that's what made him the most popular. He mm -hmm. got the most mail. He got the most attention. When guys like me and my buddies, we always debated who was the coolest, sexiest. Was it Paul or was it? John, you know, yeah. George never came up, and, <laughs> and certainly not Ringo. Mm -hmm. Ringo was a clown, you know. Right. And George was too introverted, but John was kind of really super cool. And all of the cute ones. Paul but... was the tall, cute one, man, that had that cool bass. You know, he had it going. You know, he had them eyes. You know, which was a big debate: are they blue or are they green? Oh, they switched them. He died. <laughs> <laughs> when they did the cyanide capsule in the cigarette that's become such a trope you know in movies or became such a trope was that a thing before doctor now sure it was okay but it wasn't in the cigarette mm. it was always a cyanide capsule all you gotta do is watch any of the old intrigue spy stuff a lot of times it was in world war ii flicks the german always had the cyanide capsule i'm not sure but i think in where eagles dare dare they had cyanide capsules i liked jack lord as felix Leiter. yeah and he felt very much like the american james bond in this particular instance he's got mm -hmm. the cool shades he's got his own chiseled features but he's colder than bond he's rougher than bond and it, it kind of felt like he was the american bond it's such a shame that he only appeared in the one movie as lighter well you know i'm guessing that hawaii 5 probably had a lot to do with that but the hawaii 5 was years later it was like like but, four years look, later or something. wait a minute now because i'm going to tell you i can yeah. tell you that from my perspective from what i can remember i I knew who Jack Lord was, but not until Hawaii Five-O did I think I know who he was. But Jack Lord did character parts in westerns and stuff. Well, I mean, you know, Wagon Train and and Rawhide and the Rifleman. No, I don't think it was Rifleman, but there was a bunch of parts he did. He he was no stranger to TV. If you look back, you'll see he was definitely a stranger to movies, but not to TV. Well, they didn't bring him back for any of the other ones because he wanted more money and better billing. And they're like, yeah, well, we're kind of, but it's too bad. What gets me, though, watching him in that movie especially, uh, do you remember the uh, Jim Steranko Nick Fury comics after they turned Sergeant yeah. Fury into a spy yeah. I swear Jim Stranko based his version of Fury on Jack Lord he's got that same kind of hair and that's a lot of very similar looks I don't know tell you the truth I've thought a lot about Sergeant Fury because of the difference between who and what Sergeant Fury was in comic books and what he was in paperback in paperback he's a World War II hero a sergeant in the comic books he's something entirely different he was that too it's just that when the 40s gave way to the 60s he got the eye patch and he became the james bond ripoff right 
they were talking about that sequence where Professor Dent is being questioned by Dr. No. Or rather, he goes to warn Dr. No about James Bond and knows, like, I didn't need you to come here. I specifically told you not to come here. Don't do this again. And he's sitting in that one room where there's got the skylight with the intricate grid design. And apparently that was done because they were out of money and they just needed something that would be visually stimulating for the sequence, but they didn't have the money to actually have a nice set for it. So that was something real simple that they could do. But I loved how the, the music cuts out and it's just silence besides the two men's voices and Dr. No speaking in that very modulated tone. That was a great villain moment. And then it all ends with the tarantula, you know, him picking up the tarantula to go plant it in Bond's room. Right from then on, I thought Dr. No was one of the coolest Bond villains out just off of that. That was just such a effective a sequence. A lot of people would agree with you, but yeah. it's stuff like that tarantula where my spidey sense starts see i don't you you know you know me i love bad movies Mm -hmm. bad horror movies to me are just so entertaining but it goes further than that i mean we're talking c and d movies i can really get into that stuff but there comes a point to where in the bond movie it's just refined enough it irritates me not so much about the tarantula because i do realize in that time period people did think they were deadly well and that, that was funny too is they were in the commentary they were talking about how it was dangerous to handle the tarantula because it still had its poison sack I'm like I know tarantulas bite you but I wasn't aware tarantulas poison you in a way that would be potentially lethal there are uh, actually one species I know of that can be that dangerous Mm -hmm. you know but it's still to a certain group of people that's not the point it was the cage itself there's no tarantula I can think of even twice as big as that 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 cage would have kept in Mm. (laughs) If they had put him in a cricket cage, a Chinese cricket cage, I would get that. But no, they didn't. Well, they wanted you to see the tarantula inside of the cage, I'm sure, was part of it. And they wanted well, to and if somewhat- you look, they actually had a piece of glass where the tarantula was pasted, I'm guessing, to on the other side. And you can see it in the movie. Well, what they were talking about, how they were, they were shooting the sequence, they didn't want Connery in actual contact with the tarantula. They nailed the bed to the wall and put a glass pane between Bond and the tarantula and had it walking up the glass pane. And then that didn't look good enough. So then they also shot stuff with a stuntman with the tarantula actually crawling on the stuntman and went back and forth as the tarantula was working its way up Bond. And I, I think that the, the sequence was well done with a sweat on his face and the tension on his face. Did they explain but the time, why they didn't want a tarantula on him? Well, supposedly it was supposed to be poisonous. It was supposed to be a lethal tarantula. But they did, it was just an insurance issue, I believe. And also, I don't think Connery wanted the damn tarantula on him either. I'm sure. You know, a lot of times these guys have uh, uh, getting what what was it uh, not ultraviolet but uh, uh, X uh, no Daredevil oh okay okay when she now this is the Ben Affleck Daredevil with right. uh, Jennifer Gardner Jennifer Gardner yeah. and you, of course we all know the hero Superwoman parts that she's played she has admitted. In I don't know how many interviews I've seen, just how vulnerable she is. Very meek and very afraid of things. And yet they make her, uh, and I, is there, isn't there one where she rides a motorcycle up beside a building, or who who was that? Now that sounds more like Mila Jovovich in Ultraviolet. Okay, maybe it was. But I saw an interview with her where she's deathly afraid of motorcycles, even mm. to get near them. And for her to even be on this stationary thing on a sound stage terrified women have a tendency to tell you things like that and 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 using her part look at all the stuff that she does in those movies or they make her look like she's doing it anyway but men have a tendency not to admit 
Right. Stuff. Arachnophobia is a real thing. I've never looked it up. I don't know what kind of spiders they have in Scotland. I'm pretty damn sure they're not trans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I've handled tarantulas. I've had friends that... Uh, your sister wanted one in the worst way as a pet, and I mm-hmm. bought her a rat instead. Mm-hmm. That's the part that got away from me. I'm, I'm not afraid of stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I'm not afraid, but I don't want a tarantula crawling on me. They just seem kind of gross to me, all the hair and stuff. They're actually, you do notice that there's no warmth coming off of. But the hair part, if anything, the, the parts that's not, they, they feel like dry leather. But I've I've had several tarantulas that friends of mine have had that we played with. In fact, I almost got one as a, a gift to your sister's mama because uh, she she wanted a Mexican red leg. We've had a lot of exotic pets, including snakes, so it wouldn't have bothered me. But I guess I understand the fact that you've never held one. You would probably think that. That spider's boo in a very specific way it's kind of unnerving yeah so. well yeah i'm i'm the type of guy i don't kill spiders no i don't kill them either i, I like them if i, if I, I see a brown recluse in the house yeah. i'll kill that right that's dangerous but yeah. i don't even kill black widows out in the yard same thing with snakes if i if a deadly snake pops up in the yard i'll pick it up throw it in a bucket of some kind and haul it down to the river or something and turn it loose mm-hmm. used to haul it down to the bayou when we lived in houston i know they're really good for the ecology and good for me i'm I mean, I don't have rats and mice because I know there's snakes out in my yard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm the same way with spiders. I, I There's little I hate in the world as much as a roach. Spiders eat roaches, among other things. Yeah, so I'm now a, big a roach, of, I, yeah. I, I go to a lot of trouble to get roaches. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, I'm, I'm very kind to spiders in the house and such. I always escort them out if they're in a place that's not appropriate for them. You know, I work, I sit at a bench, and it's I've got the bench all to myself. And I'm wondering, when I first started working there, why does nobody ever sit at this bench? And it's because that's the bench near the tree that has spiders and horse flies and bees. So I just do my best to avoid them or brush them off. I've got one, though. There's these spiders that are, like, real friendly. They keep wanting to follow me around the table. And I don't want the spider on me, and I don't want to accidentally crush the spider, not paying attention so I'll end up having to move around the table to get away from the spider just to let it have its free roam but I don't want to hurt the spider it's just I don't want to cuddle with it either though horse flies another one back when I was a kid I had to deal with them all the time I don't want one, I'd, I'd almost get rather be stung by a bee than be bit by one of those things they're just very aggressive and just so damn big when they fly by yeah. you you're like God, yeah. yeah well they're eating off of you mm-hmm. they're eating and drinking off of you Ursula Andress I wasn't terribly impressed with her. I know that that shot of her coming out of the ocean is supposed to be very iconic and there were times when I would catch nice angles of the bikini where I was like, okay, I can see where you're going from here. I actually liked her better once she got into the Asian dress, the Oriental style dress, but I know they... they Which she does not have the body for. (laughs) Maybe it's the the unique way she filled it out. Right, right. Looked about fit to burst. But I know that they did voiceover for her because her, her accent was too thick so it was another actress's voice and she's got a nice enough body but she just wasn't really my type so for her being the initial Bond girl and the character herself was gross the whole thing where she's an uneducated practically feral woman who hunts shells and then she does she tells you us gotta all about understand her. now man for yeah. a man in that time period yeah that would have been the sexiest thing in the world a cave woman that looked like that and she's built right for that era perfectly I understand it because that was the kind of girl I'd go for if you look 
looked at a lot of my early girlfriends, they all had places to grab. You know that my tastes changed. I mean, you know, by the time I was in my 30s, I was looking at athletic women. In the 60s and 70s, when I'm first trying to decide what it is I like, yeah, it was uh, more the Gina Lola Bridget of Doris Day, uh, and she's got all of that. Mm-hmm. In fact, she probably has more because she's got that accents were a big thing. And in 62, that was before the British invasion. Two years later, if a chick had a British accent, she was fine. It didn't matter what she was <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that chick's British. She's hot. <laughs> and it didn't... I don't, I don't think it even mattered what kind of British accent she had. If she had a British accent... And guys were the same. We were just having that discussion about Man from Uncle and the character Kuriakin, NCIS... Same actor. Same actor who plays Ducky. You know, now he plays this knowledgeable, semi-irritating boar. With an English accent. With a, with an English accent. And is he, he is he British. Okay. He's British. And back then, you know, we were talking about this little bitty blonde guy with more or less a Dutch version of a beetle haircut who played a Russian uh, the similar genre as James Bond. And he was hot, hot, hot. Just like the monkey's little Davy was hot, hot, hot. Because that's what girls went for. And hey, Davy was British. If it was British, it was hot in America, man. For a long time. Even in kids' movies. Mary Poppins. What was it? Bed knobs and Broomsticks? Sounds was, right, yeah. Yeah. All those movies had a British yellow, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Hey, you know who was really, really hot? I didn't realize it. Angela Lansbury. When she was young, she was smoking. Uh, you know, and it was all about her eyes. Mm. You, you got to remember that when they used to show her, she would be like in a, well, you know, since most of them were black and white, it looked like white silk, but it was all about her eyes, you know, and they always, they put soft focus on her a lot. So I'm not sure if she was all that hot. Yeah, I remember that she, she was, and of course it was before my time. Yeah. When she was, because yeah, that by was, the that time was the I was a kid, she was in bed knobs and brooms. Right, exactly. That's what made for reminding me is I've caught like her. <coughs> I've caught her and I've caught Judy Garland in some of her earlier roles in the black and white films and it was like wow they were really something back in the day so yeah I don't I don't think Judy, Judy Garland was actually all that attractive but mm. uh, they, yeah they made her attractive in movies oh wait Honey Rider is a dumb name even for a Bond girl I think that's a terrible name and g- given that this movie for like three quarters of it seems like it's trying to be real grounded it's a fairly realistic looking almost like a procedural because it's really him just trying to solve the mystery. It's not nearly as fantastic as a lot of the Bond movies. And then all of a sudden you've got Cavewoman Honey Rider showing up and that's when it just kind of goes out the window for me to a large degree. Because um, right after that, then you get the dragon tank that shows up and fries poor Quarrel. No memorial for Quarrel. He's just yeah, like, ah! you, know, He's you ever wonder about that stuff? Because you almost always got, you know, whenever they do a parody of, of a genre, mm-hmm. it's always the black guy that gets it. Mm-hmm. And also one of the things in the genre, I don't know if you ever noticed, but whenever something's coming at them, it's like all of a sudden somebody nailed their boots to the floor. Right. <laughs> right. 
Well, it's like Quarrel hits. <coughs> he empties the gun and then he sits there and waits for it. Yeah, he's like checking off boxes for black stereotypes in movies too. Because he's the one who's afraid. He's superstitious. He's the one who's doing everything he can to avoid going to the island. Bad mojo. And when they're on the island and they know that they're going to get in trouble, what's he start doing? He starts drinking from that big old jug of booze. And then of course he's the one who's. Ah! And dies, and I don't know if this would have happened if it had been an American film. Mm. But you look at Bond. Bond actually has a look of respect when, after he goes through his whole shebang about not wanting to go to the yeah. island, I'll be there. I'll be there in the morning, mm-hmm. and Bond makes this look like, all right, all right, you're a good guy, you know. Yeah. So he proves that, regardless of all that other stuff, he ain't no coward. That he took that flash pulled to the face like I was nothing. Hmm? When the camera girl takes her picture and she grabs this flashbulb and smashes it against the table and cuts his face. Oh, well. Yeah. He just brushed that right off. Well, but that was just bitch slapping. That was, you know. But she threw blood. Yeah, but it was a woman, you know. <laughs> uh, in a way, you could say that was a stereotype. It's political correctness. Viewing it now and viewing it then, attitudes were... In 1962, civil rights was not such a big deal as far as Amer- American yeah. whites were concerned. And I don't think it was a big deal it all to the Brits. Mm-hmm. It was like a non-issue. Maybe by the 70s the Brits were a little bit more enlightened than we were. Live and let die would say otherwise. Well, my my whole point, it's really funny, maybe the Brits were a little more enlightened. When I say that, maybe in view of an American black. But you got to remember, black to a Brit was an Indian. They were the blacks. Mm-hmm. They were the darkies and the blacks. And they, it was even in their language. They didn't refer to Africans that way. They had other terms for them, but in a lot of respect, they weren't much different than Americans. It was just the way they, the different cultures pick and choose what. Brits, their Mexican food for many years was Indian food. Curry this and curry that. And my comparison is how we feel about our Mexican food or Tex-Mex food and how they felt about Indian food. That mm. was their spicy dishes. Well, and I can tell you, too, there's a Indian cuisine, like two on every block in London, for instance. And yeah, it's I everywhere. Know. It's at least as prevalent. No, I, in, I think as I tried to tell you that when you said you were going there. That's yeah, the, it's at least as prevalent as Mexican restaurants would oh, be yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it becomes a total fantasy once the dragon tank shows up, but really once Honey Rider shows up. But I really dug once they're in the secret base, even though it makes no sense for them to capture Bond. I mean, I see where they try to explain it away that Dr. No was so impressed with Bond's ability to not die that he thought he might have a place for him in Spectre and then realize you're just a common policeman. You don't understand what Spectre means to the world. But I love the decor. I loved how that base was designed. And I love that glimpse of what the Bond movies would become. And also, the sequence where Bond is breaking out and he's going through the piping conveniently not only is it man sized but as big as almost as big as a sewer he's crawling around in that probably just like a couple of pipes connecting but they did such a good job of selling the danger Connery looks so good in those kind of physical daring well, circumstances see, I never understood why he went towards the heat mm-hmm. right that too I have yeah. never understood that yeah why would you exactly that, that was if you're just getting hotter and hotter it seems to you're me going the wrong that direction. would mean more and more danger right and probably not not where you want to go. Right. You want a way out of this situation. But given that we've just got some piping and some water, they got a decent thriller moment out of that. I love Nehru jackets. I love the fashion that they had in the underground. Well, I had one. 
Nehru, because that was supposed to be more Oriental than a Nehru. The Nehrus, which became popular later after the British invasion. Yeah, I had one. I had a gold one. Used to wear it all the time without a shirt. Unbuttoned without a shirt. I mm -hmm. thought I'd look cool. <laughs> Some Alibaba looking shit yeah, there. I well, see, I, I was never big with jewelry. I did, back in those days, wear a ruby ring. No, I had my clothes, and part of my clothes was that Nehru jacket. I dug, too. I was surprised that Spectre came in so early. I figured it would take a little longer for them to get to Spectre in the Bond movies. But they introduced the International Criminal Organization right out of the gate. So you've got Bond's equal or opposite. And I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. That is one of the things. Thank heavens not too many Bond movies taken as a whole were something like Spectre. Just uh, too fantastic for you? <laughs> For me, I don't care what you call those kind of organizations, but they have them in the comic book stuff on TV. I don't hardly ever watch, or I'm getting very sporadic watching, uh, oh crap, what's that show where they're, they're uh, Hydra. Oh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. The, what's killing it for me is Hydra. Well, then you should be watching the current season. I've gotten behind because I just haven't had time to watch it. I haven't watched a lot of television in the last few months. But now the show's all about Ghost Rider. It's basically a Ghost Rider show plus some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No, I have been watching those okay. solely because I want to see what where they're going with this Ghost Rider. Uh -huh. Although the Ghost Rider I was familiar with was never part of an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Right, right. Well, they, it's a backdoor <laughs> pilot. I think what it was is they kept trying to spin off something S.H.I.E.L.D. related. Sure. Like they were going to do the Mockingbird series where it was going to be Most Wanted but it was basically just going to be another version of S.H.I.E.L.D. So I think they finally realized well we need to take advantage of the greater Marvel Universe because what S.H.I.E.L.D. is offering isn't going to sell a spin off of the exact same thing. So that's why they, they were pushing the Inhumans for two seasons they're going to go ahead and spin that off into its own TV show and I think they want to go ahead and do Ghost Rider and well, then he won't have anything to do with the Age of S.H.I.E.L.D. To me it's the same thing as with the show 24 Designated Survivor Survivor looks like it's going there. Anytime you have this opponent that just won't die, it mutes the point. The point becomes mute. No, you've got to have, as far as I'm concerned, other challenges in life. And it's just so much better, you know, have an individual terrorist or... Uh, a variety of groups. North Korea or yeah. something like that. You know, something that's semi-tangible. Mm -hmm. And in the Bond films, you get that. I mean, it was easy to pick on the Russians or the Chinese or something, and it would be today. But I guess they're worried about political correctness. Let's yeah. not well, the main issue, them. I think, is because the Chinese are so sensitive to that. And China is such a major market now that all the films want to cater to them. And let me tell you what. Well, we're not going to get into politics, but... I am anti-war. If anything, in many respects, I'm a separatist. But when it comes to something like Korea, China, or the Russians, that is greed and we don't need it. And if you look at the economics of it, we don't. If we cut them out of our equations, we can make up for that market as far as jobs and that kind of thing with our own market. No. Where that comes into play is where these corporations 
and it's not that many are get, making a lot of money there and it doesn't matter how much we're losing here as long as they are making money there. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, they're not paying taxes on. I mean, that was part of this whole election process. How is it they figure into our economy when for years they were of no part of our economy? You know, they said the same thing about Russia. And look what happened when they actually went in there to invest in Russia. The mafia took over the whole dead gum country and we got cut out of the equation. So how much money did we make in Russia? Seems to me we lost money. I hate to say it, but the stuff that Trump was saying about China, I agreed with. Point was, though, is I knew he didn't mean what he said. Yeah, and he's compromised by China anyway, so. Right, big time. He's talking about the jobs going to China at the same time. That's where he sends his clothing crap. And he loves Chinese when he's going to sell them real estate. Mm-hmm. So, overall, where do you think Dr. No stands in the Bond movies? One of the better ones, one of the medium ones, lesser, what do you think? I don't look at it that way. You, way you look at it as a unit of entertainment, then? I look at it as an introduction. And I know that I could go to any start at any one of the Bond movies. I really could. And it probably wouldn't make much difference except the ones they're shooting now where it's a series you have to it's a serial and you kind of have to watch them because it's a serial but the Bond movies are not that connected but I think for a fan it's an essential introduction to Bond if I went to discuss my favorite Bond movies and why it would probably get in depth if you want to get real tight about it probably one of the best Bond movies was on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which you could call a one-hit wonder. I mean, you look at the character, the way he played it, the subject matter of the film itself, it has a lot more going for it than most of the Bond movies. I mean, it depends on... Because it's a matter of taste. Mm. But if you want to dissect one, that's one you should dissect. I mean, look at that. That is a masterpiece almost. That's why I say I can't really put them in a lineup as... You wouldn't want to rank them, but you would say the Dr. No is one that folks should watch. You'd recommend it. Oh, hell yeah. I, I, I don't think there's one of them that I would totally dismiss. They all have their good and their bad and their silly points to mm -hmm. them. If you look at it, Bronson and... Uh, Went right out of my head. Chuck Norris? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Bond specifically. Oh, you're talking about Pierce Roger Bronson? Roger Moore, yeah. Okay. Pierce Bronson and Roger Moore. The way they played Bond was totally different, okay? And their look in the films are totally different. Although, you could probably match them toy for toy, okay? Mm -hmm. But by the same token, even though it is so different, and in some respects, Pierce Bronson movies were a little more serious, you could say that, they, were bo they both played it with a certain amount of comedy. And I think Roger Moore, if anything else, showed Bond as having a major sense of humor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, he just played the part like Bond thought it was all funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all fun, and it's all fun. Until it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? 
if I wanted to look at a series of entertainment, personally, I think I'd be more inclined to watch Roger Moore than any of them. Mm. If, if I wanted to watch a movie repetitively, I'm not really into that sort of thing. Although, when I was younger, yeah, I could watch movies over and over and over again, but I don't know what it is as you grow older. But maybe your recorder gets better. Mm. You know what I mean? If I see a movie, even one that I enjoyed, more than every couple of years... It's not such an uh, enjoyable, you know, the longer the distance between the time I saw it before and the time I see it next is going to judge how much entertainment value I'm going to get out of it watching it again. Even something like Defenders of the Galaxy. Oh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of, yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy. I can't wait for the next one. Mm-hmm. That is a movie that I've probably watched since it came out four times with people that haven't seen it just because I was bored and couldn't think of something else to watch. Didn't have anything new particularly to watch. Popped it in there and watched it. That's one of those movies that kind of is the exception to the rule, but yet I have seen it now about four times in the past 12 months. I'm not really eager. I'm eager to see the next one, right. I'm not eager to pop Go that one in there. Yeah. The 108th Sage. Ain't me freaks, ain't me nostalgia. Ange, Biko de Django, Chris, Chronosphere Fiction, The Sin- Cinnabod Podcast, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Daniel French, Fish Bonus Sound Design, Dave Golding, Doc Strange, El Romero, Van Holes Podcast, Gabriel Brake, Gregory Lynchfield, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of comics on film into the weird i was joe crawford jeffrey brown jennifer de ross jerry mcmullen john horsley kb likes avengers comics keith g baker king dinosaur christados Longbox crusade martin gray Myrna loy Nexus of All, Paul Matthew Carr, Podcast Boost, Randy Andrews, Ranger Gord, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos. Podcast. Shulactopus Inc. Schlocktopus Inc. Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast. Sherlock 28. Steve Sellers. Some of them, I guess we've done enough of them now. I recognize some of those names. <laughs> The preceding program is intended for the common good at no expense to any citizen. It should therefore be considered to possess a license to thrill in service to fair use and not seen as a hostile act against copyright owners in the international marketplace. As always, should you or any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.